The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord, Lord Christ. everyone. I'm glad to see you all. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you and acceptable to you through Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. This is our final sermon in the book of Acts. Our time in Acts has spanned for five months now, and a lot has happened in our world and in our lives in that time. If you remember back in May, we thought we were basically done dealing with COVID. Remember that? But also in May, 270 people died in the conflicts between Israel and Palestine at that time. 25% of those who died were children. And then in June, the condo in Miami, Florida collapsed. 98 people died there. In July, Jeff Bezos went off to space and the University of Texas left the Big 12 along with that other team that we're not going to name, but that happened. And then in August, it was the Olympics. And then at the end of August, Hurricane Ida hit. And as we've seen over the last week, moving into September, the greatest destru destruction has been done in the Northeast with all sorts of catastrophic flooding and at least 50 deaths so far. So all of this has happened while we've been preaching through the book of Acts and more. I didn't even mention all of the things from my own personal life or any of yours that could have been mentioned and significant things have happened in all of our lives in that time. And I wonder what news or what message it is that's ruled our hearts and our lives this summer over the past five months. The book of Acts ends with a storm, which feels pretty appropriate given that list that I just read off of all the summer headlines. But why end the book of Acts like that and what does it mean for us? Three points this morning to try and answer that. The beginning, the place, and then the assurance. First of all, the beginning. To understand why Luke ends the book of Acts with a storm, we have to go back to the beginning of the book and remember what I entitled this series so long ago, and that is a story to set our expectations. Our expectations for what following Jesus in this life and through this world actually is like. And Luke ends the book of Acts with a storm in part because that's been everything that we've encountered throughout this book. The entire book has been this one storm of some sort after another. And the book of Acts begins with a storm. In Acts chapter two, we read about the day of Pentecost. 
Pentecost means 50, 50 days after the Jewish Passover, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. And what happens on that day? The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. And the way that Luke describes it is like a storm, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, he says, and fire, fires of tongues. And he's, he's groping for language here, trying to adequately describe all that is happening here. But the image is that of smaller flames leaping out from a larger one, a larger consuming flame. You may remember me talking about the bootleg fire in Southern Oregon back in July. At that time, it had burned 550 square miles. Austin, by comparison, is 300 square miles. By the time it ended, it had burned 39 days and it consumed 650 square miles. That's twice the size of Austin, 413,000 acres. And I told you then that it was a fire that became so large that it started generating its own weather. Usually weather controls and predicts what a wildfire would do, but this one became so big, it controlled the weather. It started creating its own winds, its own clouds, its own fire tornadoes. And in July, I related all of that to what sin does with us. I tell you all the time, sin is a power. is a power within us, and we think we choose it. We think that we control it. And maybe initially, and to some degree we do, we start out choosing sin, but before too long, it begins choosing us and choosing for us. We start out doing sin, it ends up doing us. It grows so large in one corner of our soul and one part of our life that it becomes all-consuming. And that illustration still holds true today, that illustration of the bootleg fire with sin, but I don't want you to think about it in relation to sin this morning, but in relation to God, in relation to the Holy Spirit. Because according to the book of Acts, he's like a storm. He's the first storm. He's the greater storm. He's the storm that generates his own spiritual, moral, and emotional weather, so to speak, or his own spiritual, moral, and emotional life within the lives and within the hearts of those who believe in and follow after Jesus. So regardless of the storm that they go through in the book of Acts, time and time again it comes, and time and time again they move through it, and they look like Paul looks here. And what does Paul look like? What does he sound like? What does he do here in the midst of this final storm? Well, in verse 22 and 25 of chapter 27, he tells everyone on board this storm-tossed ship, prisoners, soldiers, sailors alike, he tells them all to take heart. So this storm is tossing this ship around, but he's not tossed about. In the midst of it, he's supporting, he's encouraging others, he's steady in the midst of this storm. And then in verse 34, what does he do? Look there, what does he do? He tells them to take food. He tells everyone, he urges everyone to eat because they're going to need their strength for this salvation, this rescue that he's confident is coming. And then in 35, verse 35, what does exactly Paul do? Says that he speaks words of hope to them, speaks words of promise to them. And then he takes bread and he gives thanks to God and he breaks it and he eats and he gives it to everybody there with him. Now, what does that sound like? should sound pretty familiar. It's what we're doing right now, this morning, even at the Eucharist. It's what we do each and every week. We gather together in the midst of the world's storms for a message and for a meal, a divine meal, divine nourishment in the midst of the world's storm so that we might take heart and continue on, that we might be nourished for the storm, for the journey ahead. This is the life of the church, not simply in the book of Acts, but even now. And some of you are very squarely being hit right now by various storms. And it's not so much storms specific to being a Christian, it's storms common to all people in this world. It's storms like the storm of sickness, 
cancer even. You've heard me pray recently for my dear friend Kristen, wife of one of my best friends from college, 45 years old. I've known her since we were 18. Four kids, excellent shape, physically fit, but now diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma. And going to be back at MD Anderson next week, I'll get to go and see them. That's some of your story as well, or similar. Or maybe it's the storm of COVID, it continues to rage. You have loved ones who are in the hospital. You have parents who have died. You've known the nagging, ongoing loneliness and isolation that so many have known throughout this time, and you're struggling. Or you've known the division and the anger that COVID seems to generate, the, the divisiveness in our culture that it just seems to exasperate. Or maybe it's your marriage. Your marriage right now, it's not a refuge. It's not a safe place. Because trust is eroded. Mutual appreciation and delight are gone, and what's replaced it is mutual victimization instead. Intimacy has lost, it's grown awkward, it's grown uncomfortable. This is one of the reasons why we're beginning a new marriage ministry this fall. It's gonna begin in just two weeks. And I love what Augustine says, or what he said so long ago, which is all may, none must, some should. It's a great pastoral direction. All may, all may go. None must, some should. Some of you should go. Some of you should participate this fall. Part of the reason that Luke ends the book of Acts with this literal storm is because that's been the theme throughout. That is our lives, and he's setting our expectations. He's always been setting our expectations. And if you are a Christian, you need to know this morning, right now, that the greater storm of the Holy Spirit is within you. If you belong to Christ, he is within you, moving you through whatever it is you will face. Secondly, not just the beginning, but secondly, the place. There is another reason that this storm hits, and it relates to the place that Paul must go. The storm hits in part because of what chapter 28, verse 14 says, which is on the second page of your handout here. I'm sorry that's too long of a reading. I'm really not that sorry, but I, you know what I mean. So it says there, chapter 28, verse 14, and so we came to Rome, and it seems very anticlimactic, and so we came to Rome. But Rome has been Paul's destination for a long time, at least back since chapter 19, verse 21, where he says, after I go to Jerusalem, I must see Rome. And not see it like many of you have seen it, not see it like a tourist, but see it in the sense that he's got to go there and he's got to do what he does throughout the book, which is to go there and to teach and to say with all boldness and without hindrance, as the entire book ends, that Christ is Lord. Christos esten kurios in Greek. I hope you're impressed. Christos esten kurios. Christ is Lord. He has got to say that there. Why there? Why is Rome so important for Paul? Well, as any first century reader would be able to tell you, Rome is where Caesar is. And Caesar is the one that supposedly rules the world. What's heard throughout his empire is not Christos esten kurios, but Caesar, Kaiser, Caesar is Lord. And so Paul's message is a direct confrontation to him and to all of the powers that he represents. The greatest power in the world and the greatest cultural message of that day, which was Caesar's the one that's in charge. And Paul goes there and says, no. And so it was beyond controversy. It was deadly. And it's hard for us to relate to. Even in our increasingly post-Christian culture, it's hard for us to relate to how deadly this message was. Christ as Lord has become more cliche. It's been a more sort of sappy bin of religious sentiment from days past, things that we cross-stitch or we find on a keychain in a Christian bookstore. Nothing against cross-stitch, I don't want any emails, but you know what I mean. It's clichéic for us. But imagine saying Christ as Lord in Kabul, Afghanistan today, this morning. Similar, it's not the same, 
But it's similar in that in Paul's name, the name Caesar would have struck the same degree of fear as the name Taliban, Taliban does in Afghanistan this morning. Both names represent absolute power and total commitment to use their brutal will to maintain the power and the control that they have. There's an article I read this week about Christians in Afghanistan turning off their cell phones and going into hiding so that they might not be traced by the Taliban. There are only 10 to 12,000 Christians and they all know that they remain in Afghanistan, especially if they remain in Kabul, what's gonna happen to them? They're going to die. Each and every one of them, they will die. Men, women, children alike, they will die unless the women and the young girls are put into the sex trade. No Christians right now are going into Kabul. No one's going in there to do what Paul is set on going to Rome to do before Caesar. And that is to say in his very backyard, Jesus is king and you're not. And that is the central message of the book. That's the main point of the entire book. It is the unequivocal declaration and celebration that Jesus, the King of Israel, is the world's rightful Lord. And Paul says it, everyone says it, and they celebrate it. And they live like it's true despite the cost. And so the implicit question throughout the book of Acts that it's always been asking us is, is Christianity costing you anything? Is it costly to you in any way right now in your life? Does it cost Paul? Here's what it cost him. Immediately after he mentions going to Rome in chapter 19, verse 21, that he must go there, a riot breaks out immediately. He goes into Ephesus, tells everyone there that the pagan gods that they worship are not actually gods at all, and it hurts the pocketbooks, the bank accounts of those who make the little god, the little figurines. People stop going to the shrines, and they riot, and they nearly tear Paul apart because of what he did to their pocketbook. And then immediately after that, there's all these warnings, these cryptic warnings. Paul, if you go to Rome, you're gonna suffer. Paul, if you go to Rome, you're gonna suffer time and time again. And then he's arrested and then he's beaten and that's in Jerusalem. Then he goes on trial, it's a sham of a trial. Then there's an attempt to kill him, a plot to kill him, he survives that. Then he goes on trial a second time. Then he's imprisoned again, he's imprisoned for two years. All of this immediately after he says, I'm going to Rome. All of this before the shipwreck here in chapter 27. And then a part we didn't even read, right after he gets off the ship, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. So think about all of that, think about all that list. All these worldly powers, Jews, Gentiles, the religious, the irreligious alike, in every cultural sphere, the religious, the economic, the political, the legal, all of them opposing Paul immediately after he says, I'm going to Rome. And then a shipwreck on the sea, which is the, the primary symbol of chaos and evil throughout the scriptures. And then a snake the primary symbol of Satan and all evil forces throughout the scripture. What is Luke saying? Why is he stacking all of this on top of one another? At the very least, he is painting a picture so that we see and understand that the second Paul decides he's going into the center of pagan worship and worldly power, all the gods of this world, all the world rulers, all the powers, all the principalities, they come together and they get worked into an absolute frenzy, like kicking over a hornet's nest. And together in climactic fashion here in chapter 27 and 28, in a last ditch effort, they try to prevent Paul from getting to Rome and to saying there in the backyard of Caesar, Jesus is king. Listen to what N.T. Rice says about our passage. He says, at this point, it seems as though the cosmos itself has joined forces with the pagan world to prevent Paul from getting to Rome, to stop him from getting to Caesar's Rome and to challenging it by the message of the crucified and risen Lord. We shouldn't be surprised. Is it not necessary that the gospel and its carriers should follow their master? 
should pass through dark waters in order to come to Caesar's city. Caesar who kills but cannot make alive. Caesar in whose empire mammon, Epaphrodite, and Mars reign unchecked and unchallenged. Did we expect that the gospel would stroll into Rome of all places with its hands in its pockets and whistling a cheerful tune? Is it not necessary that it should arrive having gone through fire and water, embodying the truth it comes to tell, the truth that you only live if you first die, that you only celebrate if you first suffer, that you only preach if you first drown? God forgive us for our pseudo gospels of cheap grace, of coddling self-fulfillment, and of a Christ without a cross and of a church which never got its feet wet. It's quite a quote, it's expectation setting. The question that we have to ask is, are we challenging Caesar's world? Are we just being swept along with it? N.T. Wright mentions Mammon, Epaphrodite, and Mars. Mammon, you probably know as money. Epaphrodite was the goddess of sex and romantic love. Mars was the god of violence and war, and they are his summary of the pagan world at the time. And he mentions them because he's convinced that the post-Christian secular West is converging with the pre-Christian Roman world, that we may have different temples, but we have the same gods. And these three are representative of us as well. And the question is, is he right? Is N.T. Wright right about us and about Mammon and Epaphrodite and Mars? Well, the way that you will know if he's right is what happens to you if you speak out against them. Try challenging or even questioning someone, someone you know well, friend, family member, about how they spend their money. See what happens. Or, or someone about how they make their money, if it's ethical or if it's not. Try questioning someone if the way that they're choosing to live out and express their sexuality is right and good and true. If it's actually life-giving to them and others, despite what they might momentarily feel or crave, or despite what the world around them says, that regardless of how you celebrate your sexuality, it should be celebrated. Try asking the question if it's actually life-giving or life-taking. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Tim, Money and sex, those are easy, easy targets for pastors like you. And you're not wrong. You're not wrong. In some ways, they're easy targets. It's not hard to get people to admit I work too much or I worry, I obsess even about money or I spend too much money on my, myself. I, I give far too little money away even to those that I know are in need or pornography is a definite issue in my life and I should definitely get help. I should talk to somebody. I should get help and encouragement, but it's too painful. It's too shameful for me. Or my body, my diet, my exercise. These, these are the things that really rule my mind and my heart day in, day out. Those are easy targets. But what about violence? Do we think of ourselves as violent? We think about our culture as violent. We think about places like Afghanistan as violent, but what about us? I preached on this passage five years ago and I talked quite a bit then about violence. I mentioned three things, just as potential examples of maybe how violent we are. I mentioned the recent altercations then between police and the African-American community. Five years ago, imagine how that issue has exploded. I also mentioned a presidential candidate whose rhetoric is aggressive, insulting, and bullying. Rhetoric that now seems just common to all public discourse and all public officials. And just to make sure that I made everybody mad five years ago, I also mentioned that our nation has some of the most liberal abortion laws of any Western nation in the world. And now, this week, the Texas heartbeat law has come out and gone into effect, and the outcry against it and the protection of the unborn has been extreme here in Austin, in Texas, across the nation. 
And my point then is what is that N.T. Wright is right. It's not just mammon. It's not just Epaphrodite. It's Mars too. It's violence too. He's right that those gods are also our gods. That's so much of what we revolve our life around. And if we dare resist them, if we dare challenge them, if we dare speak out against them, mammon, Epaphrodite, and Mars, or to use the Christian words, greed, lust, wrath of those various vices, then what happens to Paul in this book from chapter 19 to chapter 28 is what will happen to us. It is what will happen to you. His experience in this world will be your lot in this life if you resist, challenge, or speak out. Luke is saying we have to make what Paul experiences our expectation. That is another reason for the storm at the end of this, at the end of this book. But here's the third reason, the third point, the assurance. The assurance to Paul comes in the very middle of the passage, in the middle of the storm, in fact, not after the storm, in the middle of the storm. It comes in verses 21 through 26. And Paul stands up in the midst of this ship that's about to be cast into the rocks, and he tells them of the message that he received from an angel. And I want you to notice two things that he says to them. Two things. One, he says, he tells them what must happen. And then he tells them, secondly, what they must do as a result. But first, what must happen? He says the word must twice. And I'm convinced that what must happen to Paul is also what must happen to each of us as Christians. In verse 24, the angel tells him, you must stand before Caesar. And paradoxically, ironically, that's the assurance. You're going to get through the storm because you must stand before Caesar. It's not an assurance that he's not going to suffer or that he's not going to encourage or encompass loss. Everyone loses everything in this passage. Soldiers, slaves, prisoners alike, they all swim to shore with nothing. Every status ripped away. They're all the same, all with nothing getting to the shore. It's not an assurance that life will be easy or successful, be lots of prosperity. It's not that they won't be sick, that they won't have a thorn in their flesh that God, for whatever reason, will not remove, which is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. The promise is that he's going to get to Rome and stand before the power of the world and tell him, you're not king, Jesus is. And friends, at some point, that will be true of all of us. At some point, all of us will stand before Caesar. We can't escape that any more than Paul does. And for most of us, our Caesar will not be a literal king. Students, if you attempt to remain faithful, young people, if you attempt to remain faithful to what the Bible says is true, right, and beautiful about sexuality, about gender, one man, one woman in marriage for life, if you try to maintain faithfulness to that, you will be vehemently opposed. You'll stand before Caesar. In your schools, in your workplace, in your dating relationships, with your friends, you'll stand before Caesar. For others of you, it'll be your boss. It'll be a board meeting. Something will come up. It'll be unethical. It'll be morally questionable, but it'll make a lot of money. And you're gonna have to say no. And you'll be standing before Caesar. Or for others of you, it'll be your ex-spouse. And your ex-spouse, him or her, will want for something for your children that you know is not life-giving, that you know is not in accordance with God's word and will be damaging. And you will have to stand up to him or to her and say no, because Jesus is king and they are not. Or maybe it'll be your kids. And they come to you and they say, I wanna be like my friends, I wanna be like this, I wanna be like the world around. You'll have to stand with them and help them say no because again, their friends, the world around them are not king. Jesus is king. The, the illustrations, the examples could go on in untold number. 
There are examples are endless, but we all must stand before Caesar in some form or some fashion. We will all have our day in Rome. And here's the hope. It's what Paul says a second time in verse 26 when he says, we must. He says, we must run aground. We must get through this storm, he says, because God is still using me. And that is true for all of us. It's true for each and every one of you. What you face right now, whatever it is, it will not kill you. It will not kill you, not in the ultimate sense. Not in the sense that, that Jesus died. Not like he died. Because he didn't come through the storm of this world safely. Jesus didn't run aground safely. He drowned. He drowned under the waters of the depths of God's judgment on this world, the evil, the injustice of this world. He drowned underneath it all. He died the death that our world deserves. And he was raised again. He was fully and completely separated from God the Father. And if you believe and follow after him, you will never die like that. You will never die like that. You will never be separated from God the Father. And Jesus himself, who has lived and died and been raised from you, you will never be without him. Just like our Old Testament reading, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the midst of the fire. The fire is as hot as they are. They're unbound in the midst of the fire, and there's one there with them that looks like the son of the gods. You will never be without Jesus. And you'll never be without the Holy Spirit, who I've already said is like the greater storm. He is the greater storm, and he will be with you and carry you through whatever you face. In other words, you will come to shore. You will come to shore in heaven. You will come to shore in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll be brought safely, safely to land, and God will use you. He will use you as he brings you safely to land to bear witness of the one who is bringing you through. And so take heart, he says. That's his message. Take heart. Verse 22 and 25, take heart. That's what we're to do. Take heart. And in verse 24, do not fear. We have to keep up our courage as Christians. We have to say our prayers. We have to pray earnestly, as I preached a few weeks ago. We have to love one another. We have to love others. We have to love strangers. We have to practice costly hospitality. We have to live and speak differently. And we have to never forget to never Never forget that the reason we go through the storms is because we're carrying the gospel of God's kingdom in order to declare to the world in word and in deed that Jesus is their rightful Lord and he's good. He's good and he's kind and he's merciful and he forgives and he gives new life. So hold on and keep up your courage. Ride out the storm, whatever it is you face and know that our church is here for you as you do. Do you know this, that Paul, as soon as he got to Rome, the church showed up? As soon as he got there, people from the form of Appius, wherever that was, showed up. And from three taverns, they all converged there to help Paul. And their very presence gave him courage. All saints will do the same for you. Regardless of whatever it is that you face, we will help you stand before whomever and whatever you are called. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning that you would give us courage, that you would give us your spirit that we might be courageous people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he was drowned under your water so that we might make it safely to shore. We thank you for him and for all things in his name. Amen.